The Tony Alamo Christian Ministries was born in the late 1960s as a way to help those who are living on the streets in Los Angeles get their lives back together. This organization continues today, but it wasn't what it appeared to be. This was nothing more than a cult, pure and simple. Listen today as we learn about the horrible abomination created by two scam artists. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, little ones, to Killing, Missing, Hidden, your favorite podcast about bad things. I'm your host, Mr. Brad. I'm a former criminal defense lawyer of many years who now works for the state Supreme Court, kind of advising the justices on criminal matters since I'm the only former criminal lawyer among the central staff attorneys they employ. Neat, huh? So I've been on a little bit of a break. You know, long enough that it took me about 20 minutes to find where I record podcasts. Um, I'm doing better, and I appreciate all the kind words and love some of you folks have sent my way. This is why I really care about y'all. You're the best. Still not 100%, so we may have to do a few kind of lighter episodes until I can get fully back on my feet. But I know, I know I'll keep trying to produce stuff, and I hope y'all keep showing up, listen comes pouring out of my mouth. All right, now, from as you heard from the intro, we're doing a cult episode. We don't do many of those. Uh, you know, as a warning, we do kind of deal with child abuse to a certain extent in this episode. Nothing graphic, of course, nothing even close to graphic, but I don't want to ruin anyone's day, so I'm putting that out there. And I also want to say up front that I relied on a really, really well done article by Delaney Barlett, who is a true crime blogger and vlogger, if that term still exists. Uh, her article is in my show notes, so you can link directly to it if you want to read it. She also has her own YouTube channel called The Murder Nerd. So go check her out if you want some video form of true crime, since I'm not really allowed to be out in public very much around young people and, and the elderly to scare them um anyway oh and uh one last thing it's it's a new month sort of i mean we're like 11 days into it when this is released but you know yay new month which means there's new merch in the store i kept my promise we we've rotated stock so head on over to kmhpodcast.com slash shop you can check out some of the snazzy things that will be on sale until november yeah if you don't do it, I'll I'll sick the hounds on you, as I'm wont to do. Okay, enough banter. I mean, this is a crazy amount of banter for us. Let's uh let's dive into the story about a boy with a dream that became a horrible, horrible nightmarish cult. Bernie Lazar Hoffman. He was born on September 30th, 1934, in Joplin, Missouri. Though his parents were Jewish, he had very, very little interest in organized religion. Many of the details of his childhood aren't really known because he was the sort that liked to play with his background. He would make up a story that fit his circumstances. Doesn't the Joker do that? Isn't that his reason why nobody knows where he comes from? 
So yeah, this is kind of like a weak sauce version. This this is the Dr. Thunder to Dr. Pepper version of the Joker. Anyway, um, what we do know is that when he was a teenager, Bernie was convinced he was destined to make it big as a singer. So he like left school, left his hometown, moved to Los Angeles. On the way, he changed his name to Marcus Abad, believing that his birth name was, quote, too Jewish, unquote. When he arrived in the City of Angels, reality came crashing down on him like a fat woman who slipped on a stair. He, he just flat out couldn't sing. I mean, yeah, like back in Joplin, Missouri, his friends and family and those folks were, you know, pretty encouraging and said he had a good voice and whatnot. But uh, his... While he may have been talented by Joplin standards, it was not up to snuff for Los Angeles standards. He never even got to record a record. Never even allowed to play a gig. But one thing we're going to learn about Bernie here is that ain't going to stop him from achieving dreams. Okay? Oh, wait. No, he changed his name to Marcus. He's not Bernie. He's Marcus. Oh, wait, no, I'm wrong about that, because he changed his name a third time to Tony Alamo. And actually, he didn't pronounce it Alamo. It was Alamo. Alamo. But I'm, I'm going to call him Alamo because he's not someone whose opinion I respect. He changed his name this time because, you know, he thought it sounded more Italian. And I guess he wanted to be more Italian. I don't know. Didn't want to be Jewish, that's for sure. I guess Italian was the next best thing in his mind. He dressed the part of a successful music man. He wore expensive suits, lots of jewelry. He, he would even be seen in public, like, riding in limousines and having hired muscle protect him. So, you know, this dude was really, really committed to his lie. When people started begging to know when he would perform next, you know, he finally decided that he could only <laughs> tell the same lies so many times before he had to change up his story. So... He said that he had quit singing. He was focused more on producing music. He wanted to help find, you know, the next diamond in the rough. And if you listen to what Tony would tell people, you know, he had worked with some really big stars like the Rolling Stones, the Doors, even the Beatles. Again, none of this is true, but why let reality stand in the way of your dreams? Even though he had worked as an imaginary manager for all these successful bands, you know, it was his heart that really drove him, if you ask Tony. And he he decided that he was done working with those that were established, and he was really committed, like I said, to finding new talent. Mainly because he could kind of bedazzle them and have his way with them. Not like that, business-wise. So what he would do is he would go out to all the local clubs and bars and things like that, find, find someone that had some talent to him, sign him as, as a client. He would pretend to be their agent. And then he would go to a bigger venue and talk up this new star he had found, how great they were. And he would charge the venue a certain amount. Then he'd go back to his client and say, hey, good news. I charge you know, this venue $1,000, so here's your half of it, when in reality he charged the venue like $5,000. And because most of these were young kids who were trying to get their foot in the music industry, 
they didn't understand, you know, how things worked and they tended to trust Tony. So he was able to make a lot of money scamming uh, those who were chasing their dreams, which is just so super cool of them, huh? So you can tell, like, we're really dealing with some good folks here, okay? Eventually, you know, Tony was smart enough with his money that he wasn't just wasting it on drugs and things like that. Now, where he got the suits and the jewelry, I have no idea. That that was never clear. But this money he was making from signing all this new talent, he would take a lot of the profits and invest it in real estate, which turned out to be a pretty snazzy move on his part. So he's not an idiot. He's just, you know, heartless and selfish and whatever their negative adjective you want to use. Now, things were going good for Tony when all of a sudden, he started telling people that he received a message from the Lord. And at the same time, he ran into the love of his life. Now, we're talking about the early 1960s here, okay? So let's, let's tackle them one at a time. First, Tony started telling people that he was gifted with this vision that Jesus would soon be returning to earth. Armageddon was coming and people needed to prepare. Now, he says he saw it in a vision. We don't know if he means a dream or something that was like a drug-induced hallucination or what. And I'm sure we wouldn't get the real story from Tony regardless. But that became kind of his thing. He, he started, you know, preaching. Not formally, but he was telling everybody he would meet, just like, yep, I got this vision. Straight from the big man upstairs, here's, here's what he's got to tell me. Well, because he was super big into preaching, he was introduced to a woman by the name of Susan Horn. I, I want to describe her as a young woman, but that would be a bald-faced lie because she was nine years older than Tony. So, like, Tony was in his early 30s, roughly, at this time. So, you know, I'm not saying she was old. But if Jimi Hendrix is asked if she was experienced, Susan would have had to say yes. Now, okay, so why are these two hooking up? Well, Susan was someone that was kind of sort of known throughout certain Los Angeles religious communities because she did some pretty remarkable things. Much like Tony, none of them were true, but she told stories like they were. See, Susan's entire career, her profession was essentially scamming churches. Very noble. She had a young daughter, and she would make them both dress in kind of like basically rags, torn up shoes. They would be kind of dirty. And then they would attend a local church service. And when service was over and all that, she would make a beeline for the preacher man or whoever was running the show and ask if she could say a few words about her experiences being a missionary in, you know, Far off places where they didn't even speak English, but she was trying to teach the good word to everybody. So, you know, we're talking places like she really likes South America, um, you know, and and sometimes Africa and even like as far away as as Louisiana. I mean, just God awful country. I kid, I kid. I like Louisiana. Um, she. Because she would tell these, she had this uh, kind of charisma to her and she could tell these stories, she would be able to ask people for just a little bit of help so she could get home. Because it turns out while her and her daughter were out on these mission trips, this 
jerk of an ex-husband that she never had would, you know, take all the money out of their bank accounts and and sell her car and and she couldn't even, you know, she didn't have a way to get home except through begging. And so, of course, this moved the congregation and they would end up donating several hundred dollars to her and her, her daughter. And then they'd go out and have fun and do whatever you do with stolen money. And they'd wait for the next week's church services at another church down the road. And they just kind of moved across America doing this. So they kind of bounced across the country and eventually ended up in Los Angeles and continued the scam. And actually, when they got to Los Angeles, Susan had a change of heart. You know, she had been scamming her whole life. It was now time for her to try a legitimate career. She knew she was destined to be an actor. Tony was going to be a singer. Susan was going to be an actor. Both love scamming people. I mean, how could these two not meet? I mean, it's just, it had to be predetermined by the universe, right? So the story goes that Susan saw Tony in a bar, and she heard him talking about his recent religious conversion. She also noticed he was wearing a really nice suit, had a really nice watch, had some what appeared to be gold jewelry on his fingers. So she approached him, thinking essentially he was going to be her next mark. The first thing she said is, do you really believe in Jesus Christ? And Tony enthusiastically said he did. And no one's quite sure how their conversation went at that point because they got a private little table. But both claimed that they fell head over heels in love with each other That's that night. Again, you know, this isn't real surprising with such a common background that they shared. Neither Tony nor Susan went by their real names. We know Tony's story. Susan's birth name was Edith. They were prone to overstate their situation to get what they wanted from people. Both apparently had been married many, many times. And obviously they loved scamming people. Working that together, they decided they just couldn't be stopped if they used their, and I'm using air quotes here, faith to bring help to the local community. They founded what was known as the Music Square Church and began recruiting a congregation made up of, you know, the homeless, drug addicts, and dirty hippies. They, they called the, that's how they referred to them, as dirty hippies. It, it was street people and dirty hippies. So they would give these people food and shelter if they would agree to attend services every Sunday. And most kind of found this to be a fair deal. They actually would then be sent out during the week, too, to record, recruit more people. And they referred to themselves as Jesus freaks. And when I heard that, I had to look this up. So it's I couldn't confirm this. Like, I can't, like, go on record and say this is the truth. But I found several suggestions that... This is where Elton John got the lyric in Tiny Dancer. I'm not making it up. Like when he talks about Jesus freaks in the streets, handing tickets out for God. Yeah, supposedly it was from his experiences seeing uh, Tony's little congregation out there working pretty hard. Now, the remember they were promised shelter. And remember Tony had been investing in real estate. 
So you're, I know what you're thinking. It's like, okay, he's got several properties. He can put these people up. They have a nice chance to get together. Yeah, we could do that. Or we could do what Tony did, which is essentially he designated one property, a three-bedroom, one-bath, to hold all of his congregation. Now, how many people are we talking about? He didn't have a congregation of three people or six people. When he first started doing this, like when he first opened up this house to these people, it was several dozen who all lived, ended up living in pretty squalid conditions. It was so bad that police would regularly be called to do welfare checks. And when they saw how these people were living, they would force all the residents out of the house because no human could live in all the filth that was going on. Tony didn't care. Like, this was a tax write-off at this point. Naturally, like, as any good shepherd would be, Tony and Susan were right there with their flock. Not physically, of course. No, they, they weren't going to go into that pigsty. They had gotten a place of their own. But, you know, spiritually, they were there with their people. And, you know, arguably, the living conditions were not the worst part of the Music Square Church. Members would have their lives micromanaged down to how they cut their hair, what clothes they could wear, and what food they could eat. They also had to supply a regular income to the church, you know, to pay for their housing and all that mess. Those members who didn't have a steady source of income, which was virtually all of them, would be sent to work at local farms, and their paychecks would be sent to the church. Many members were also encouraged to go to the local welfare offices to attempt to receive whatever government assistance they could. And, of course, that would also be handed over to the church. Now, this wasn't a church that you would think would appeal to dirty hippies because Tony, the chief spiritual guy here, he was the very much the, the fire and brimstone sort of preacher, you know? We're all going to burn in a lake of fire together forever, unless somehow we can trick God into thinking we're worthy. It's rather ironic when you hear this whole story, but, you know, we'll get there. And, you know, that was his gig. So he ran the congregation for about a year, and, you know, he got the church up and running. It wasn't so much that they got a church up and running as much as they were playing some sort of, like, worker placement game where all their little troops existed solely for the benefit of gathering resources for the church. And by church, I mean Tony and Susan's wallets. But anyway, after a year, Tony and Susan decided, you know, they could remotely manage this operation. They didn't have to stay in Los Angeles. So they appointed some folks as, like, managers, and they moved off to Las Vegas. And here it was that they finally formally wed. If, if you listen to Tony's sermons, they were living in sin this entire time. But now they're cool. They got married in Las Vegas. I'm sure it was very classy knowing them. It was also in Las Vegas that Susan's daughter, remember her? She made a formal complaint claiming Tony assaulted her. And Susan's reaction would be exactly what you would expect from a loving, caring mother. Stop trying to seduce my husband, you dirty, filthy whore. I'm not joking. Those are the words she used. 
We can also call this foreshadowing. So the romantic management of the church didn't really work out as well as Tony and Susan had hoped. There were are some rumors that they had some other schemes of cooking in Vegas, but they never really panned out. So they decided, hey, let's go back to Los Angeles. We got free labor we can exploit. And once they returned, they were able to make the congregation grow even more quickly. By 1970, there were over 200 followers of this, again, air quotes, religion. And yes, all were still living in the same three-bedroom house. Tony finally wised up and said, you know, three bedrooms divided by 200 people, that math doesn't look so great. So he went and purchased some land. Oh my God, I forgot to look up how to pronounce this. So I apologize to the people of Los Angeles because I'm just going to power through rather than pause the podcast as a professional would and look up how to pronounce this. But I would say Saguas Canyon, Saguas Canyon. So anyway, in this canyon, <laughs> Tony just purchased a chunk of land. And it was kind of a pretty nice little slice of heaven on earth, you know, uh, including the tall walls he had built and the armed guards he employed. It, it was kind of a reverse Garden of Eden, I guess. You know, naturally, the compound, the land wasn't infinite, so he had to build bunkhouses and folks would sleep in there, you know, 20 to 30 people in one bunkhouse. That probably was more designed for like 10 to 12 people. Again, squalid conditions. On top of that, everything that Tony provided was heavily, heavily rationed. And I mean everything, like food, water, electricity. In addition, the followers were expected to work long hours and only got a few hours of sleep per night. So the congregation basically became one of zombies. You know, sleep-derived, malnourished, filthy zombies. If anyone's ever accused of being lazy or selfish or merely just caught breaking any of the seemingly hundreds of rules Tony had enacted, they would be kind of taken out into what I imagine is this courtyard type area and just beaten like a rented mule. So the whole congregation could see the consequences of not obeying Tony. Literally, there are reports that when this occurred, sometimes Tony and Susan would be off to a gala or something. And so they would watch the flogging from their Cadillacs. Uh, Cadillacs that were paid for by, you know, the congregation's income. Oh, and I, I guess I should mention too, the, the followers were no longer farming at this point, but would work to support the small but growing empire of businesses the Alamos had developed. The Music Square churches started popping up in other major cities, including Nashville, Chicago, Miami, and Brooklyn. So, you know, Tony was trying to take over the world one major city at the time through his, uh, his faith we shall call it. Now, as far as the business side, Tony was good at business. You know, as evil as he is, that well, that probably made him better at business, didn't it? But he, you actually may be familiar with one of the items that his slaves produced. It's the now infamous Alamo jackets. These babies were highly, 
highly sought after in the late 70s and early 80s. Michael Jackson was wearing one on the cover of his Bad album. They were either denim or leather jackets airbrushed with some honestly pretty cool designs. I mean, they were they were pretty well made. Um, you know, everybody who was anyone during this time had one. Greg Allman, Dolly Parton, even Mr. T. And you could actually still buy these bad boys on eBay and at vintage clothing shops, though they usually go for several hundred to several thousands of dollars. Of course, during this time, in defense of Greg Allman and Dolly Parton and Mr. T, nobody knew that they were being made in sweatshops. But if you wanted to be someone in this magical time frame, you just had to get a Tony Alamo jacket. You know how that is. All right, so back more on the compound. While they still aggressively recruited new members of the flock, those who made their way onto the compound found it very difficult to leave. Some would say virtually impossible. You basically had to give your undying faith to the church, and it could not be revoked. In 1973, the church experienced a recruitment boom when they developed and began broadcasting a weekly gospel and variety show, I guess you would call it, from the compound. It was called, creatively, the Tony and Susan Alamo Show, because, of course, they had to have their names in it. And every week, it featured Tony leading the musical portions, while Susan worked the savior angle. She would often interview people who were formerly homeless, or former drug addicts, or former sex workers, and they would now tell how they lived such an amazing life, thanks to Susan and Tony. Now, the show, for whatever reason, really struck a chord with people, and it got popular enough that multiple, like, real television stations begin showing it and broadcasting it. And so now, you know, Tony and Susan, since they're on TV, they can seduce hundreds of thousands of people every week instead of just those that they could reach face-to-face. They were reaching this great promised land. In 1975... Tony decided it was time to move again, so the church moved to the promised land. You like my little bit of foreshadowing there? In Alma, Arkansas. This is just south of Interstate 40 on the western side of Arkansas, and I mean like far western side of Arkansas. It's almost a pretty small city with a population of just under 6,000 today. I can only imagine what it was back in 1975. But it has a water park, so that's something. And a Motel 6. So, you know, they're not all bad. Now, why did they pick Alma? Well, because it was Susan's hometown. So, obviously, like, she was a big fan of this move, right? No, 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 no. Not at all. Susan hated Alma. She hated it. I think she hated the entire state from the way she talked about Arkansas. But Tony loved the idea of moving there, mainly because it would allow them to avoid the same level of scrutiny they would face in a big city like Los Angeles, should a word of their questionable activities ever get out. And, you know, by questionable, I mean things like human trafficking and slave labor. Plus, they're moving to the South. They're moving kind of into the Bible Belt. So if you say you're a Christian and you're doing something in the name of God, well, then, you know, 
your first three murders are kind of on the house before police get suspicious. This was also a locale that was much, much closer to the country music scene at the time. And so the Tony and Susan Alamo show can now book acts such as the aforementioned Dolly Parton, Hank Williams Jr., Tammy Wynette, and Buck Owens. The compound had some interesting design choices, too, and how it was constructed. The home of Tony and Susan was at the center of a multi-purpose building. And what I mean is, essentially, somebody built a mansion without exterior walls and then surrounded the mansion with offices, meeting rooms, conference rooms, little auditoriums. They did all this because, you know, churches don't pay taxes. And this way, Susan and Tony could live in an opulent mansion that, for all intents and purposes, was just an office building that was owned by the church. And so nobody would question it because they would just say, oh, we have, we have you know, some sleeping quarters up top. It's, it's nothing significant. On the land they bought, they also built a school, a restaurant, a trucking depot, and a clothing factory. So in addition to not having to pay taxes on church's property, they also didn't have to pay any labor to operate these businesses because they had slaves and no heart. But even in this promised land, the stupid government expects some rules to be followed, you know? Some slaves, I mean followers, managed to escape or leave the faith and reported what was really going down to local authorities. Now, if you had to guess, all right, let's, let's test your knowledge of the, the federal law enforcement system we have here in America, in the United States, okay? If you had to guess which agency led the charge in investigating Tony and Susan Alamo, who do you think it would be? The FBI? No, it wasn't them. Homeland Security? Nope, didn't exist back in those days. No, it was the brave members of the Department of Labor. They invested the working conditions and determined that Tony and Susan still had to pay some wages to their workers to the tune of roughly, you know, just about $19 million. That was in 1976 money. In today's dollar, that's just shy of $100 million. Yeah. But like any good millionaire, Tony was able to spend twice that in legal fees just to be able to say he did nothing wrong. Plus, you know, again, this is a time when the Alamo jackets were becoming a big thing. The Alamos were making money hand over fist, and they couldn't have their reputation ruined by this silly little lawsuit. Uh, here's a fun fact that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. When you say somebody's making money hand over fist, you know that's actually a nautical term? It, it originally described a sailor who could climb ropes quickly. So, yeah, the more you know. Anyway. The lawyers they hire do their lawyering and keep putting off the Department of Labor suit until 1982 runs around. And this is not the best year for the Alamos. 
years. Okay, so 82, they remember that year with a heavy heart. This is when Susan got breast cancer and also died from it. This is a little ironic because a common grift she would employ while the church was growing is she would pronounce that she was suffering from cancer. She would kind of, using makeup and her scamming skills, make herself look, you know, kind of weaker and weaker. Uh, and then suddenly one day she would announce that she had been miraculously healed thanks to her faith. And so it worked so many times in fakeness. Why not try it in reality? So that, that's what Susan did. She and Tony refused any medical intervention whatsoever. And they just prayed a lot. But ultimately, ultimately, I think my boys will be proud of this line. Her, her, her lack of faith was found to be disturbing. She dies. Tony kind of loses it a little bit and declares that, you know, okay, Susan's died, but it's cool. It's cool. Because I know in three days, she's going to rise from the grave just like Jesus. Okay? He, to make sure this happened, he had his uh, workers slash indentured servants slash slaves perform, you know, these, these prayer shifts. Um, like they were praying 24-7 or 24-3, I guess you would say, to help her have the strength to rise again. The 72-hour deadline passed, and Susan remained dead. Tony again went bananas in a way only Gwen Stefani could fully appreciate, and so he called more slaves in away from their jobs, and he told them it was their fault that Susan hadn't risen. It was their lack of faith that kept her dead. And so he would require his followers to pray in 24-hour shifts. No going to the bathroom, no getting something to eat. You sat there and you nailed and you prayed. And this continued for a little while longer than three days. Roughly 180 days, if reports are to be believed. And the only reason that it was stopped then is because so many of the people who were forced to work these shifts started throwing up from the smell of Susan's decaying body. And Tony himself really couldn't go in the room anymore because the stench was just dreadful. So he had his followers build this huge marble mausoleum just for Susan. And she was interned there. By the way, this white marble monstrosity was located right next to the giant heart-shaped swimming pool that they had built to express their love for each other and their love for Jesus while their followers suffered and toiled. Now, I would say this had a negative effect overall on Tony's morale, and it kind of made him slap happy in almost a literal sense. He took on that old pirate slogan, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. I actually typed out meetings, which may be worse. The meetings will continue until morale improves. I think I'd rather be beaten than sit through a series of meetings. Anyway, uh, Tony also, during this time of being a little out of it, quickly remarried to a Swedish woman who had been really instrumental 
and getting the Alamo jackets into the New York fashion scene and arguably was responsible for them catching fire and being the hot item to own. Now, the marriage only lasted for a couple of years because Tony kept insisting that his new Swedish wife get plastic surgery to look like Susan. Now, I don't know what the Swedish wife looked like, but there's lots of pictures of Susan. And to borrow from one of my fellow podcasters who I love so much, it's always the husband. Susan was a very handsome woman. A very, very handsome woman. But you take the handsome woman and you mix in some Florida lot lizard. And that's where you get that's where you get Susan. So, you know, I could see where the Swedish woman would say, no, no. I, I mean, as creepy as that request is, I don't really want to look like that to begin with. 1986, just four years later, another bad year for Tony. That Department of Labor case finally went to trial. Ultimately, Tony was ordered to pay $15 million in back wages or about $78 million in today's money. This also cost the Music Square Church its tax-exempt status, which was a massive financial blow because now all their businesses that operated tax-free and up with free labor suddenly had to start paying workers and taxes. Tony handled this as any mature intelligent man of leadership would. He went into hiding and started mailing in sermons on VHS tapes. And he, the, his trusted lieutenants used these tapes to, you know, keep the faith going in the congregation. Tony was sued again in 1988. A father sued Tony on behalf of his son, who was one of those jolly workers Tony had until he nearly beat the boy to death. Tony didn't really fight the suit at all and was required to pay $1.8 million by default judgment. In 1992, he's back in court. This time, he's the one choosing to be in court because he's fighting to get his tax-exempt status returned. But uh, it, it didn't work so good. Not only did he lose, but the IRS said, okay, you want to mess with us? We're on it, bud. And all those back taxes that he was supposed to be paying and he hadn't been, they just started seizing property off of the church's land. The IRS is, you know, good about helping you pay off your debts like that. In 94, two more lawsuits hit, one brought by the IRS against Tony for not paying his personal income taxes, and yet another wage and hour lawsuit. This ultimately forced Tony to declare bankruptcy, effectively destroying the massive empire he had built. So naturally, that's where our story ends, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Things somehow managed to get worse for poor old scamming and slave master Tony. Because of his tax issues, he was charged with tax evasion and was sentenced to serve six years in prison at the Federal Correctional Institute in Texarkana, Texas. I actually think I had a client end up going there about 15 years ago. That's a different story, though. Anyway, but, you know, nothing keeps Tony down. He's just a ray of sunshine in everybody's life, ain't he? So while he's in jail, he continues to record his sermons and release them into the world. And 
you know, he was studying the Bible a little bit more in depth and he kind of became mildly obsessed with the idea that, you know, if you read it just right, the Bible kind of does sanction marriage with girls as soon as they start menstruating. So, like, age 12 was cool to Tony. And he acted upon this. Then this is the part where, where part of me admires his gumption, which is just being overwhelmed at his stupidity. He began asking his most loyal followers to begin visiting him in prison and to bring new brides for him, okay? Child brides. And I use the plural form because if he can marry one 12-year-old, why not marry multiple children, right? So basically what happened is an older woman would show up with her, again, air quotes, daughter, to visit Tony. And then Tony had scouted out the visiting area pretty well. So he knew where to sit and he knew where to have the quote-unquote mother stand so that the security cameras really couldn't see what Tony was up to. And he would just molest the heck out of these girls right there in jail. I am dead serious. He had 12-year-old girls brought to him in federal prison so he could molest them, and he didn't get caught. When he was released from prison in 1998, he had eight wives waiting for him, six of which were finally of the age of consent, which means two weren't. He continued to get worse and worse as he aged, becoming more violent with his followers, restricting rations to exceptionally low levels, and continuing to take on child brides. I know you're asking. I know some perverse part of you wants to know. What was the youngest he married? Well, we know 12 is cool, but we also know Tony's not afraid to bend the rules, right? So the youngest child bride federal authorities could document was a whopping eight years old. Eight years old. Uh, this dude was quoted by the AP, okay? Not within his own little organization, not in one of his little sermons, but while being interviewed by the Associated Press in 2008, where he said, and I quote, consent is puberty. He believed that once you went through puberty, you had given consent to marry him. I mean, this is a dude that needs to be drug out into the wilds of Africa and have hyenas rip his junk off because this is just incredibly depraved. Thankfully, one of his followers again escaped, reported to the authorities what Tony was doing. By this part of his life, he had a pretty good reputation with law enforcement. You know, they had come and visit him several times because of people escaping so in September of 2005, law enforcement raided two of the compounds he owned there in Arkansas, because yes, he continued to expand and grow. But Tony couldn't be found. Apparently, he had been tipped off by somebody, and he fled the state. So he went all the way to Arizona. So he gets to the Mexican border, 
could cross it and probably be safe for life and say, yeah, no, no, Arizona's enough for me. Five days later, he was spotted in Flagstaff, Arizona. Police descended on the state while he was on the run and police were distracted. He instructed his followers to remove Susan's casket from the marble mausoleum. And I don't think it's ever been found. I, I mean, this, I, hmm. weirdo is the only thing I can say. When he was caught, he was charged with 10 counts of taking underage girls across state lines for sexual purposes. That's a fancy lawyer way to say human trafficking. At his trial, to his utter dismay and shock, all of his wives were so quick to testify against Tony and described in detail the sexual abuse they experienced, witnessed, and suffered. He was found guilty on all charges on July 24th, 2009, and sentenced to a modest 175 years in prison. The trial judge also called him out on his fake religiousness, saying that Tony was going to have to face a higher power than him, and it won't be pretty. In February of 2014, he was ordered to pay $525 million in damages to seven members of his church who were also victims in his criminal cases. They had brought several civil actions to further pound them. Tony, amazingly, still had money and resources, though. Like enough money and resources hidden away that the Department of Corrections, or the Federal Bureau of Prisons, that's what the feds call themselves, I think, they actually had to move him from like prison to prison to prison every year or two because he would start bribing the right guards and start getting all, you know, some, he would start amassing a base of power there in the prison and would start to be above the rules. So he was like a super disgusting version of Wilskin Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin from Marvel Comments. Finally, on May 2nd, 2017, this little prick, Tony Alamo, a.k.a. Marcus Abad, a.k.a. Bernie Lazar Hoffman, died in prison at the age of 82. Little bit of a cherry on top, small one, he did die penniless. So he did get a giant middle finger from life at the end. Amazingly, though, and this I cannot understand, Tony Alamo Christian Ministries continues to operate to this day, though no one really knows who's in charge. There have been investigative journalists who have been sent to find out this information, and they've come away empty-handed. Now, the only operating ministry I'm aware of is located in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And it's got, it's been reviewed on Google. It has 1.9 stars. Shockingly, it includes three five-star reviews, one of which claims it's a scripturally accurate organization that reflects the true word of God. Now, they, they didn't say what scriptures they were relying on um it's not the ones that i've read in the bible but yeah one one point nice not 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 great not great but you know the three five stars reviews they're doing what they can to offset the bad press we don't really cover cults as often as we should do we it's kind of a shame 
If only the guy in charge of this program would get his head out of his own butt. Maybe we could up the quality of this. Um, you know, I'm I'm really fascinated by the fact that this church, such as it is, continues to operate. They had a, a Facebook page, but I refused to visit it, just even for research purposes. Uh, but, you know, I did see on Google Images some of the stuff they post on there, and it's their, I don't know if it's weekly or monthly newsletters, uh, discussing all the way Christians are being persecuted in the United States. <sighs> and it contained the subtitle, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder. I'm sure that's a very compelling and persuasive read. Now, I mean, I think y'all know this. Well, I know y'all know that I'm an attorney because I don't shut up about that. I'm also, you know, believe myself to be a Christian. And no, those are not two mutually exclusive titles. So, you know, like, I have faith in the Bible, but I also understand under our system of government, the role of churches in our society or what it should be. And studying the role of religion in the United States is a fascinating topic to me because in general, because of our First Amendment, the government really isn't allowed to get involved in the affairs of a church. And in my job, working for our state Supreme Court, I actually see a lot of appeals and petitions from time to time where you know, like members of a church want to sue their pastor because he took all their money and had a mistress and was gambling and doing all this stuff that you probably don't want the leader of a church to be doing. But every time the ruling is, that's a church matter. We can't get involved in it. I'm sorry. But, you know, old Tony here went so far that the government kind of had to make some special exceptions. I mean, not for the criminal stuff. You, you get caught abusing kids, the First Amendment's not going to save you there. But, you know, generally the Department of Labor doesn't really like to get involved in internal church matters. I mean, generally, if you work as like a secretary for the church, you should get paid. But if you happen to be, you know, an elder or hold some sort of title within the church, then they don't have to pay you. It's it's really complicated, and I'm not going to go down into the all the regulations and all that, but it, it kind of seems like the Department of Labor's wage and hour division here when they investigated Tony's operation, they just fired like a shotgun class of allegations and pleadings and got money for anyone it could, you know, which is pretty much a good thing when a church is forcing you to work as a slave. I'm kind of also curious at what the straw was that broke the camel's back when it came to revoking the church's tax-exempt status. Do you think it was the heart-shaped swimming pool? Or maybe operating a clothing factory slash sweatshop on church property? Perhaps making people pay, pray for six months straight that your dead wife receives resurrection? I mean, who knows with those wackos at the IRS, right? And who knows what would have happened if the Department of Labor, of all people, or of all organizations, didn't start this investigation. I mean, they were the vanguard of all law enforcement in this case. Without them, who knows how long this would have been allowed to go on, you know? I mean, it's like the IRS had to bring down Al Capone, the Department of Labor had to bring down Tony Alamo. I mean, 
Shout out to the Arkansas Department of Labor's offices. The part of the story I hate the most is the fact, well, there's lots of parts to the story that I kind of hate a lot. But one part that I feel is, I guess, the most unjust is that Susan never got punished. I mean, she got breast cancer and died, but she she deserved she deserved something more than that. She she needed to spend a little bit of time in jail, right? And I have to vent a little. You know, I never advocate for people losing their job. Uh, but dang, what were those prison guards doing when they were letting Tony see kids and he was hiding them from the security cameras and ugh. It's so stupid. Now, my gut tells me that maybe Tony was free with the cash and convincing people to look the other way during his visitations. That's kind of consistent with Tony's MO. And correctional officers are woefully, painfully underpaid for what they have to do and what they have to put up with. So it wouldn't really be all that difficult to grease the wheels, but not for this. Man, this is too much. And I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They Surely they didn't know that Tony was doing this so he could, you know, touch little girls. Ugh. This is one of those great examples to me of why you got to be careful who you follow. You know, there's these people are monsters of a false religion, you know. And, and frankly, I'm of the opinion that if you go to a church that uses donations for worldly per pursuits, like adding on a basketball gym to the church or, you know, buying a, a Learjet for the preacher man. You're probably not in a group that's being run by very spiritual people. We have one church near where I grew up that was so obnoxiously massive. I mean, it had multiple basketball courts and it just spread out like this, like this virus all over the, the city. My friends and I referred to it as Six Flags Over Jesus. It, it was just that ostentatious. Now, you know, I, I'm all for, you know, churches doing what we think churches should be doing, you know, helping the poor, providing food, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm just a little hesitant when, when a preacher man says, God told me he wants me to drive a Rolls Royce, you know? All right. I mean, I know you guys don't tune in for a religious man. I right? just, please don't join any religious groups that essentially view you as an ATM or as free labor. It, it's not a good place. I, I, I can, I feel competent saying that across the board. If they look at you with dollar signs in their eyes, they, they don't really care about you. So don't, don't join up. Uh, if you're interested, there's multiple books on this case, which I did not read, as well as an episode of Evil Lives Here on Discovery Plus, which I did watch, but I didn't really take any information from it. Um, it's entertaining, I suppose. Also, I didn't because I didn't include any information for it. It's kind of still a little surprise for you, right? Yay. Also, before we close this one out, do me a favor. Go look up Tony Alamo. And just, I mean, his mugshot or whatever, just see what he looks like and tell me, tell me that I'm not weird for seeing his face and my initial knee-jerk reaction is, well, I need to get a shovel so I can whop him in the face.
I mean, honestly, he has a face that was just designed to be curb stomped. There's no nice way of putting it. And it turns out it would have made the world a better place had somebody done that back in the 60s. Okay, uh, uh, joke time. Let me see. Um, you know, we always go, our, our palate cleanser is usually themed. And this week is no exception. Hopefully no one finds this one offensive. But, I mean, honestly, if you do, you've probably quit listening by now. Um, so, what kind of car does Jesus drive? That's our joke. What, what kind of car does Jesus drive? A Chrysler. A Chrysler, right? I mean, it's so, so simple. So, so stupid. Just perfect. Perfect way to end this show. Well, I reckon that's all I've got to say for this week. Uh, make sure you check out our October merchandise before it's too late. Because when September ended, we woke up Green Day. We were very, very sad to see they had missed what we had to offer then. Don't be like Green Day. And uh, again, those of you that left reviews during the past few weeks, thank you so much. That means a lot to us. They were so kind. Please make sure you pity all the fools who get in your way, since we made a Mr. T reference in this in this story. Um, and have a glorious week full of naps and, and baked goods. Yeah. You know, I, or, well, you know, live like a cat. That's what I'm telling everybody to do. That should be our goal in society, just, just to live like a cat, where we can nap, we lay in the sun, we get tired of the sun, we go knock something off the, the countertop, and then we lay down in someone else's chair. Oh, it's such a great life. Okay, well, um, time to chop, chop, lollipop. How you like that? that? That's my goodbye message. Time to chop, chop, lollipop. Right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.